All righty. Can you all hear me out there okay? Awesome. How's everyone doing? Are we good? Awesome. I'm glad to hear it. Well, if you don't have a Bible, take a second. We've got tons of Bibles back there. Go ahead and grab a Bible. Make sure that you have one. You are going to need it. Um, we are in the middle of a series titled God Is. We are looking at some essential characteristics, essential attributes, some essential things that pertain to who God is and pertain to his nature, what makes him God. Last week, we looked at the fact that God is triune. That means that God eternally exists as a holy trinity. And we looked at a definition from this book, The Forgotten Trinity. I'll remind you again, if you don't have it, you should get it. It is fantastic. It's one of my favorite books. Um, I gave one away, and so if you don't have the money to buy one, I'm sure, which twin did I give it to? And remind me, which, are you Emily or Amelia? Emily. Huh? Yeah, so, hey, y'all are lying to me. I don't appreciate that. Hey, ask, I'm sure she'd let you borrow it, right? Or I'll let you borrow mine. If you really want to read it and you don't have the money to buy it, I'll let you borrow mine. Uh, but seriously, get this book. It's fantastic. And the definition that we looked at laid out uh, what exactly the Trinity is, and we highlighted that there were three uh, uh, foundational pillars of Trinitarian doctrine that you must hold together if you're going to have the Trinity. And I'll give massive kudos to the person who can remind me what those three pillars are. Do you remember what they are? Can you name one of them at least? Huh? Well, yeah, God is, that is one of the persons of the Trinity. But in the definition, we had three pillars of Trinitarian doctrine. Does anybody remember what they are? Right, that they exist, that, the, that there's three persons and they exist co-equally and co-eternally, right? That was one of the pillars. The other one was that there's three persons. And what's the first one? Does anybody remember? It starts with an M. That's right, it starts with an M. You can go ahead and say it. I don't know. You don't know? <laughs> you just know it starts with an M? That's great. What is it? Yes, yes, we said that, co-equal and co-eternal. We've already mentioned that. So there's three, there's three persons within the Trinity. These three persons are co-equal and they're co-eternal. And what was the last thing? Monotheism, that's right. Monotheism is a compound word that means there's only one God. And those, those three things uh, basically set the foundation for what the Trinity is. That there's one God, monotheism, there's only one, that's it. That this one God exists as three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and these three persons are co-equal and co-eternal. And we surveyed all of the scriptures and we saw that within, uh, from, from one end of the scriptures to the other end, that it testified to these three truths. There's one God, there's three persons, and they're all co-equal and co-eternal. Tonight, we're going to be looking at the fact that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Now, when it comes to God's nature and character, uh, theologians have historically distinguished between two types of attributes or character traits of God. They've separated those into what are known as communicable and incommunicable attributes. Can anyone tell me what communicable means? Does anyone have any idea of what communicable means? Uh, very good. That's, that's, that's very close. It means that these attributes can be communicated or transmitted or, or shared, right? When it talks about God's communicable attributes, we're talking about attributes that we as creatures, specifically creatures made in God's image, uh, uh, attributes that we share with God. For instance, we are relational beings, right? We are made to be in relationship with other people. The reason we are relational beings is because we are created in God's image. 
And God is a relational being. We see that in the fact that he is triune, that there are three persons that all relate to each other. God is, in his, in his essence, as God, he is relational, right? He has relationships with other persons within the Godhead. And because we are made in his image, we too are relationable. And so it's important to note that when we're talking about communicable attributes, though, these are the attributes that we share, attributes that God has and that we also have. Uh, that we must not look to ourselves to understand these things about God, right? So a lot of the mistakes that people make is they say, God is a relational being. I am also a relational being. So because I like to relate to Jonathan in this way, that must be the way God likes to relate to Jonathan. That's a mistake. It's a mistake to look to ourselves to understand things about God, and what's fascinating about our culture is our culture is constantly trying to turn our focus inward. It's constantly trying to tell you, look to yourself to find the divine. Look to yourself to find yourself. Look to yourself to find God. That's a mistake. If we are looking to ourselves to know who God is, we're starting at the wrong place. We're looking at the wrong place. One of my favorite uh, theologians and teachers, a guy by the name of K. Scott Oliphant, uh, he uh, uh, said this about uh, turning inward, what, what he calls introspection. And he says that there's a danger to introspection. And he says that the reason there's a danger is because as a Christian, when we're really trying to understand who we are, we have to look outward. True Christian introspection, as he puts it, must be focused outward towards God. And coming to know and understand God, we come to know and understand ourselves. And he gives this example of, of a mirror. Let's say... Um, Let's say I had Ava come up here and stand in front of a mirror, right? What would we see in the mirror? Ava. Right, we see a reflection of Ava, right? Now, that reflection has no real existence, right? Apart from Ava standing in front of the mirror. If Ava were to leave the mirror, what would happen to her reflection? It would also leave, it disappear, right? Um, and so, similarly, we have no real existence apart from God, our creator. We are made as image bearers. We are made to reflect God. And we don't have any real existence apart from God being there for us to image, for us to reflect. Now, imagine, if you will, Ava standing in front of the mirror, right? And imagine that reflection inside the mirror trying to understand what it means to be a reflection, right? That's kind of confusing in a way. But imagine... This two-dimensional, not real thing that's just a reflection in a mirror saying, I want to know what Ava's like, and it begins to examine itself. Do you think it'd really get to know what Ava's like by looking at itself? No, because it has no real existence. It's a two-dimensional reflection. And, and so, uh, similarly, when we focus in, our, in ourselves to understand God, we, we are like that mirror image trying to know the source by examining itself. It makes no sense. There's, there's no way, uh, uh, there, there's, there's just no way that a reflection can come to know the source that it's reflecting by looking at itself, right? It just, it, it can't happen. There's no way that that works. Similarly, when we're talking about God's communicable attributes, we must not look inward to know God. We must look outward to God to know him. And in the same way, if Ava's reflection wanted to know, what does it mean for me to reflect Ava? What does it mean for my existence as a reflection Again, if Ava leaves, the reflection's gone, right? The reflection has no real existence. In order for it to know itself, it also has to look outward to the source. That's what we have to remember when we look at God's uh, communicable attributes, those attributes that we share with him, 
if we are going to understand who God is, if we're going to understand who we are, we have to look outward. We have to not focus inward to ourselves. But right now, we're not focusing, right? The focus of our study tonight is not on the communicable attributes, but on the incommunicable attributes. So if, we, so if communicable means that this thing can be transmitted or shared, what does incommunicable mean? That it can't be shared, right. These are the character traits that distinguish God, that separate God from us. There are certain things that we share with God, but then there are other things that we do not share with God. There are certain character traits that God has that we do not share with him. Uh, there, and there are several incommunicable attributes of God. There's the fact that he is omnipotent, right? There's the fact that he is omnipresent, right? He can be everywhere at once. Can you be everywhere at once? No, you can't. It's impossible. You're here, and that's it. That's the only place you are. He's transcendent, right? He is infinite. Imagine that, like we are finite beings. There was a point in time when you were not here, but here was here, right? God is infinite. There's never been a point in time where God did not exist. Uh, but specifically, the focus of our study tonight is the fact that God is uh, sovereign. We're focusing on God's sovereignty. Sovereignty is an incommunicable attribute of God. We do not share in this sovereignty. Now, the word sovereign refers to, uh, uh, usually uh, refers to a supreme power or supreme authority within a particular sphere. Have any of you heard the term sovereign nation? referred to like our, the United States or to Japan or to other nations. What that refers to is the fact that these governments, these, these, uh, um, these countries' governments are the supreme authorities within their borders, right? The British government doesn't get to tell me what to do and what not to do because we are a sovereign nation. Only my own government can tell me what to do and what not to do. But even then, when we speak of sovereign nations... These sovereign nations are only sovereign to a degree, right? Their sovereignty only extends to the edge of their borders, but even then, they are subordinate authorities because there is a sovereign even over these nations, right? Namely, the king of the universe, namely, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so when we speak of God being sovereign, we're not talking about him being sovereign in just a small sphere. We're talking about him being sovereign over the entirety of the creation, right? Over every corner of the universe, God is sovereign. Uh, the late R.C. Sproul liked to put it this way. He said, there's not a rogue molecule in the universe. There's not a single molecule in the entire universe that says, I can do what I want. No, he's still uh, existing under the sovereignty of God. God's sovereignty knows no limit. And the reason that God is sovereign, and that's big S sovereign over the entirety of creation, is because he is the creator of everything. He has all authority and power because he is the one who created. And the fact that he is the one who created separates him from his creation. So what is it specifically that makes God sovereign? What specifically gives God the right to rule over his creation? Well, it's the fact that he himself is the creator. And he himself is not created, right? So when we talk about the fact that God is sovereign, we're talking about the fact that he is completely separate from his creation. This is what has been referred to as the creator-creature distinction. If you don't remember anything about tonight, remember this, creator-creature distinction. Say that with me. Creator-creature distinction. And this has to do with the fact that God is separate from his creation. 
And the reason that he is separate from his creation is because he is the creator and we are creatures. So when we speak about this distinction between the creator and the creature, we're talking about an ontological distinction. Say that with me, ontological distinction. When we speak of ontology, does anyone know what we're talking about? We kind of referenced it a little bit last week. Ontology. Study of being, that's exactly right. When we speak about something on an ontological level, we're talking about the essence of its being. So, when we look at something like a cow, right? A cow has skin, it has four legs, it has teeth. Several things have four legs, several things have skin, several things have teeth. When you boil it down to its very essence, what is it about the cow that makes it a cow? That's what we're dealing with when it comes to ontology. So when we speak about the creator-creature distinction, we're talking about an ontological distinction. Okay, we're talking about in our very being, if you were to boil it down to what makes God God, what makes the creator creator, and what makes creatures creatures, there is a distinction between our very beings. There's a distinction between the creator and the creature. And again, you can go ahead and, and go to the next slide for me. So when it comes to ontological categories of being, there are only two categories of being. Can anyone tell me what those categories are? Right, there's creator and there's created. Basically, there's God and there's not God, right? This, and that's it. That's, that's the only two categories of being, right? If we go and we look at Genesis 1, uh, which we're going to look at um, in a little bit, but if you read the entirety of Genesis 1, you see that there's several different categories of being. He talks about creating light, separating light from darkness, separating the, the heavens from the earth, separating the water from the land, creating plants, creating animals, creating humans. Uh, there's so many different categories of created beings, but all of those categories fall into one category, which is not God. The one thing, although we are the crown of God's creation, we are created in his image. We have the imago dei. We are uh, distinct from his creation in a certain sense. At the end of the day, when you boil it down to it, we are not God. That is something we share with the rest of the created order. I am not God. This music stand is not God. My children are not God. The squirrel I ran over the other day is not God. There's only God and there's not God. Again, if you don't remember anything about tonight, remember this. There's only two categories of being. There's God and there's not God. Now, when we speak of, of God, right, when we're looking at this God category and we're trying to understand what makes God God, the one thing that separates God from the rest of his creation <clears throat> is the fact that God is not created. Okay? That's kind of a difficult concept uh, to grasp. Hey, would you mind bringing me my water right there on the corner? I can feel a tickle in my throat coming up. <clears throat> that is mine. Did you drink it? Thanks. I'm sorry. So what makes God God and what makes everything else not God? Well, it's the fact that God is not created and everything else is. God is not created. We are created beings, which means we are in the not God category. Uh, if any of you are familiar with the Latter-day Saints or the Mormons, they believe that Jesus Christ was once a man who became God. 
That means that Jesus Christ was a created being. He was not God, and he jumped from not God into the God category. That can't happen. <clears throat> How can what is created all of a sudden be not created? How can it transcend its own existence as a created being? It can't. There's no way for it to happen. So what separates God from the rest of his creation is that he is not created. So how, did, how does God exist if he is not created? This is what philosophers throughout history have referred to as the aseity of God. Say that with me, aseity. It's kind of a big word. And basically, aseity just refers to God's self-sufficiency. His self-sufficiency. Basically, that, that means that God is, is independent, he's autonomous, he doesn't require anything for existence. Now, when we talk about God being self-sufficient, we're not just talking about how he doesn't need to eat, right? We all need to eat several times a day, probably. Uh, if we're going to exist, we need to drink water, we need oxygen. It's not that just like God doesn't need oxygen, or he doesn't need to, to eat food, or, or, or that he's like some, some sort of self-charging battery that just lasts forever, no, it's, it's much deeper than that. When we talk about God's aseity, we're referring to his ability to exist entirely within himself. God does not need anything outside of himself to exist. <clears throat> now, I know I said that, and that just kind of came off very casually, but that's kind of a big deal. Like I said, on, on some level, we require several things to exist. We need food, we need water, we need um, time and space to exist, and God doesn't need any of that. One thing I like to ask people <coughs> is, where was God before he created everything? Does anyone think they can answer that for me? Where was God before he created everything? Well, the, the answer is he was nowhere. Because he had a created place to exist in, right? God was nowhere because there was nowhere for him to even be, right? Where did God exist before time? How did he exist before time? We're linear beings. We, we have to have a time to exist in. There was a day that we weren't here, and then there's a day that we were here. We need time to exist in. God doesn't even need time to exist in. God created time. He created places, God does not even need time and place to exist in. He has everything necessary for existence within himself. He does not depend on anything else to exist. Now, this is also what philosophers have referred to as uh, the difference between necessary and contingent beings. Necessary and contingent beings. Necessary beings are beings that have to exist. There's no possible reality. There's no possible world where these beings do not exist. Now, contingent beings rely on something else to exist, right? So we are uh, what philosophers would refer to as contingent beings because we require something else to exist. Now, some people would say that matter is eternal, which is false. They're wrong. They'll learn one day. They, they say that matter is eternal, but, but even then, even if matter is eternal, we are still contingent beings because we require matter for existence, Right? But we're Christians, and we know the truth. So it's not that we require matter to exist. We require a creator. If there's no creator, we, can't, we wouldn't be here because we're creatures. Think about that mirror image again. The image in the mirror would not be there unless there was somebody standing in front of it. In the same way, we would not exist without a creator to exist or to create us. 
Excuse me. But God is a necessary being. He's not a contingent being. That means he has everything within existence wrapped up in himself. Again, quoting the late R.C. Sproul, here's what he had to say about necessary beings. He said this. He said, a necessary being is a being who cannot not be. Think about that for, for a second. He cannot not be. Uh, a necessary being exists by the sheer necessity of its eternal being, of its aseity. The self-existent being is not a hypothetical, is not hypothetical or dependent on another concept. It's necessary. God can't not be. Not only is God's being necessary ontologically, we've talked about ontology a little bit already, but it's also necessary logically. If anything exists now, something must have aseity. Let me pause there for a second. So what he's saying is basically, if, if we exist now, right, and we all affirm we exist, right, we affirm the chair exists because we're sitting in it, right, the stage exists because I'm standing on it, my cup exists because I'm hanging onto it, we recognize our existence. In order for us to be here, something has to be eternal. Something has to be eternal, something has to be self-sufficient to bring us to this place. We depend on something else, outside forces to exist. And what R.C. Sproul is laying out is that God is the necessary being by which we have our existence. And he goes on to say this, God must have the power of being within himself that is not derived from th something outside of himself. This is what it means to be transcendent. This is what his aseity means. So this aseity, right, this fact that he is self-sufficient, that he is the creator of everything, is what makes God sovereign. It's the fact that he has everything necessary within himself for existence. He doesn't depend on anything. He doesn't require anything to exist. This is also what makes us creatures and not sovereign. This is what places us in the not God category. It's because we do require outside forces to exist. We are contingent. We depend on something else for existence. We require air. Well, who brings the air? Right? We require time and space. Who created time and space? We depend our existence depends on so many things, but primarily, more than anything else, our, our existence depends on a creator. And in order for there to be a creator, ultimately, I mean, it would be just be an endless regression, right? At some point, it has to stop. At some point, something is not created, right? So, for instance, right, we all have parents. We all need parents to exist. Well, our parents needed parents, and their parents needed parents. It just continues to go back and go back and go back until you get to the very beginning, people come from either like the world says they just sprang up you know it was just time and chance acting on matter and just poof all of a sudden people right there was a bacteria that crawled out of the ocean and then it became a monkey and here we are right that's one explanation it's a wrong one but even then where did all that stuff come from no we require as creatures we require a creator we require a creator with aseity a sovereign creator in order to put us here on this earth. And so, go ahead and take out your Bibles for me. We're going to be looking at a few uh, uh, selections of Scripture that deal with God's self-sufficiency, that deal with his sovereignty, his aseity, that places him completely separate, completely distinct from the rest of his creation. And so let me get someone to read Genesis 1, 1 for me. Okay? Uh, let me get someone to read Exodus 3, 14. Anybody? All right. Let me get someone to read Isaiah 40, 18, uh, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Uh, Kayla, will you read John 1, 1? Uh, let me get someone to read John uh, 5, 26. 
And then lastly, let me get someone to read Romans 9.20. Oh, come on, don't be shy now. Well, you, you read it, Josh? Okay. All right, starting in Genesis 1.1, 1, 1. Go, go ahead and read that nice and loud for us. Right, very simple. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, we talked about this a little bit last week. But when the scriptures open, it presupposes God's existence. Right? It basically just assumes that God was there. And it also, in, in God revealing himself, he places himself in existence before the creation. We also see later in scripture that, that the apostles testified to the fact that everything that has been made has been made through Christ. It has been made through the Godhead. It has been made by this uh, distinctly separate, this distinctly sovereign God. God was already there when he started to create. There was a time when there was not created things, and God was already there, right? It presupposes God's existence. We see him in existence prior to the creation. All right, who had Exodus 3, 14? Awesome. This is one of my, my favorite stories, and, and especially when we're dealing with God's sovereignty, we're dealing with his aseity, we're dealing with his self-sufficiency. This is one of my favorite places to look. Is everyone familiar with the story of the burning bush? Moses in the burning bush, right? Moses is tending his flocks. One of his sheep runs away. He goes to find it. He comes upon this bush that's burning, but it's not burning. There's a flame, and yet it's not, the bush is not consumed. And what it is is actually God revealing himself to Moses, and, and in this section right here, when he tells Moses uh, to go to Israel, uh, he says, uh, Moses asks him, well, who should I say sent me? Right? What, like, what's your name? You know, because the first thing they're going to ask me is, okay, uh, you know, Pharaoh, let my people go. He's going to say, says who? Right? And, he, and this is what God tells him. He gives him his covenant name. He says, uh, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And say to, the, uh, say to this people, I am has sent me to you. Now, that name points to God's self-sufficiency. It points to his aseity, right? It doesn't say that God was or God is now. It just says that he is, right? Fascinating. So in his covenant name, when he reveals his name to Moses, he says, I am sent me. And that I am points to the fact that there's never been a point where God doesn't exist or there's not a point where he's not going to exist. He just is. Remember, God created time. and He exists outside of time. Because time, being created, falls into which category? Not God. That's right. It falls into the not God category. Uh, but not only is, do we see God's aseity in his covenant name, but we also see it in the bush, right? So when we, when we look at this burning bush, we see that there's a flame, and yet the bush is not burning, right? Uh, my Boy Scouts in the room can tell you that uh, you need three things for there to be fire, right? You need oxygen, you need fuel, you need something to burn, and you need a spark, right? Yet, here at the burning bush, there's a flame, but it, there's nothing burning. So how does this fire, how is this fire existing without burning anything? Well, that's because God's self-sufficient. Even when he reveals himself in the flame, he doesn't need something to burn. He just can exist on his own. He has everything necessary to exist. He has everything necessary to burn within himself. He doesn't, he doesn't depend on the bush to be there, right? Absolutely fascinating. I love it. Um, 
let's, uh, let's move on. So we see God's aseity. Uh, we see the fact that he existed prior to the creation that separates him from the creation. We see his aseity in the burning bush. And uh, next we're going to Isaiah 40, 18. Go ahead and read that nice and loud for us. Awesome. So, uh, if you remember from last week, we talked about uh, the trial of the false gods. It's this section of Isaiah from like Isaiah 40 to like 45, 46, 47, something around there. And in this, uh, in this passage of scripture, God is basically calling all of the false gods, all of the idols to the table, right? And he's calling them to the table and he's like, all right, you so-called gods, prove yourselves, right? And he says, he says several things that basically just... I mean, it's almost sarcastic, right? He's like, tell me what's going to happen. Tell me why the past happened. And then he goes, oh, wait, you can't because you don't have a mouth. You can't hear me talking because you don't have ears. You can't tell me anything because you, you, you have a mouth. can't see anything because you don't actually have eyes. You're just a piece of wood, right? But in this passage, right, uh, in, in, verse, in chapter 40, verse 18, he says, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? And he goes on in verse 19, he says, an idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. So he even gets sarcastic here. He says, what will you compare God to? Will you compare him to an idol? An idol has been made by a craftsman. Not the same thing, right? Your so-called gods are not the same thing. And I would submit to you that not only God's craft with human hands are false gods, but God's crafted with human minds are equally as false gods. Now, we live in a, in a very enlightened, enlightened age where we don't worship false gods, right? We don't worship idols made by human hands. You don't go to the temple of Athena to offer your sacrifices, right? Instead, what we have is we have these gods of our minds, right? We say things like, well, the God I believe in would never do something like that. Well, the God you believe in then may not be the God of Scripture. It may be a false god. If you can come up with a god in your mind, it's not a real god, right? Because... Again, think about this for a second. You create a God in your mind. That makes you the creator of that God. How can that God be God, right? That's like God creating you and saying, you are actually sovereign, not me. It's like, well, how can that be? You're not created, and I am created. You are God, and I am not God, right? If, again, God's created by human hands or God's created by human minds or no gods at all. And we see that in this passage in Isaiah, and we see that specifically here. There's nothing in creation that you can compare with God because God is completely distinct from his creation. He is separate from his creation. All right, who had Isaiah 46? All right, go ahead and read that for us. All right, again, we see God continuing in this trial of the false gods. So he calls these false gods to the table. He says, prove yourselves, prove yourselves to be gods. And then he basically says, oh, wait, you can't because you're not. And then he basically begins to establish himself. God begins to establish himself as the only true God. And we read last week in Isaiah 43.10 where he said, where God said, before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. Which, again, if it was created, it's not God. It falls into that not God category. So if it was formed, whether before God or after God, it's not God. And then here, in Isaiah 46.10, he says, Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. 
And this is great in verse 10. He says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. So in that verse 10, we see time is a created thing. God created time. He declares the end from the beginning. That means he's the one who created time. He, cre the, he created the beginning and he created the end. And we also see his sovereignty laid out very clearly at the end of verse 10. He says, from ancient things uh, not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Do you know why God can accomplish all his purpose? Because he's the creator. Because he created everything, including time that we exist in. Uh, this is kind of a, a loose analogy, but I kind of like to think of it like a, an author, right? When you have an, an author who's writing a book, this author creates a timeline, creates characters, creates scenarios, creates places. Now that author is completely sovereign over that story, right? Because he's the one who created it. He's the one who created the timeline. He's the one who created the characters. He's the one who created the story, the narrative that they're following. Uh, he's the one who declares the beginning of the book from the end of the book. This is the way that God's sovereignty works. If he created everything, then he is sovereign over everything, right? Like R.C. Sproul said, there's no rogue molecules. Nothing escapes God's sovereignty, not even us human beings. Nothing is outside of God's sovereignty. All right, uh, who had uh, John 1-1? That was you, Kayla, right? All right, go ahead and read that for us. In the beginning was the Word, Awesome. We looked at this last week. We looked at the fact that in this opening po portion of, of John's Gospel, he lays out that the Word was eternal, pointing to the deity and the eternal nature of Jesus Christ. But we see, again, uh, when we looked at this last time, we saw that when, it, when the Greek speaks of God in the beginning, right? It's not saying when you start, God was there at the start, making him just super old. No. What it's actually communicating is that if you go as far back as possible, right? If you go as far back as possible and you go all the way to the beginning, God was just already there. God did not have a starting point. He was already there in the beginning. We saw that in Genesis 1.1. It just assumes God's existence prior to his creation, right? God was there, and then he created. In the beginning was the Word, and we see that this Word was with God, and this Word was God. And then uh, if we just follow in the next few verses, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Again, God is completely distinct from his creation. There's that which has been created, not God, and there's that which is self-sufficient. That is, that which is ase, that which is sovereign, God. There's only two categories of being. Only two categories of being. There's God and there's not God. All right, and then we have John 5, 26. Go ahead. Again, Jesus points to the Father, right? That, that person... Uh, in the Godhead, and he says, for the Father has life in himself, right? That's what we've been talking about. God's aseity, he's self-sufficient, he has life within himself. He does not derive life from outside of himself, he just has it within himself. And Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, right? So we've talked about God and we've talked about not God, and there's no way for not God, right, to all of a sudden leave its category and jump into the God category, right? But God can, right? God can, can, can traverse that gap. 
And the reason that he can do that is because he has life within himself. And that's what Jesus lays out here. The Father has life within himself. And so he has granted the Son also to have life within himself. Jesus came and walked on this earth because he is sovereign. He is self-sufficient. He has everything needed for existence wrapped up within himself. And then lastly, who had Romans 9.20? Josh had that, and he's not here. Man, uh, if you have not read through the book of Romans, it is one of my favorite books of the Bible. It's kind of hard to say you have a favorite book, but one of the things I like about Romans is that Paul very systematically breaks down what the gospel is. We see throughout all of the gospels, we see through all of Paul's other epistles that he is proclaiming the gospel, right? We see Jesus Christ, we see the gospel on display in the gospels themselves, but here is where Paul, in, in the book of Romans, is where Paul really systematically breaks down what uh, the gospel is. And not only that, but like who God is, what happened, why, like, why did God have to send his son to die, how does salvation occur. And in this passage in Romans 9, he is basically going through salvation is, and is basically laying out that God is sovereign over salvation. There are many preachers, there are many teachers there are many Christians who will tell you that God is not sovereign over your salvation, that you have free will. Now, we do not, here at this church, we do not deny the fact that you have a will. Everything has a will. But the question is, is it a sovereign will? Is it an autonomous will? Is it an independent will? Right? We've, we've already laid out, there's two categories of being. There's God, and then there's not God. God has a sovereign will. He has a completely autonomous will, mean, meaning that it's not dependent on anything else. It's completely and totally within himself. The reason he has that is because, we, like we've laid out, he's sovereign. He's the creator. He's ase. He's self-sufficient. He's distinct from his creation. We are created beings. We do not have a sovereign will. Even when it comes to our salvation, it is God who moves. It is God who saves it's not, it's not within ourselves. And this is what Paul lays out. He lays out that God is completely sovereign even over our salvation. And I love what he says here in verse 20. Once he kind of gets to the end of this declaration of God being sovereign over salvation, he says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will the molded say to its molder? Will what is created say to its creator? Why have you made me like this? Right? Will not God say to God, why have you made me like this? And if you read in the next few verses, he says, has the potter, has the creator have no right, has the potter no right over the clay? Right? Has the creator no right over his creation? No, he is completely sovereign over everything. He is not only sovereign over the weather, which is often what we chalk God's sovereignty up to. He's not sovereign over you know, whether or not the Falcons will lose again this season, right? Whether or not Auburn's going to lose again this season. No, he's sovereign over everything. There's no rogue, rogue molecules. He is completely separate and distinct from his creation. Now, when we talk about God being sovereign over the creation, we, we're, we're saying that he is sovereign because he is the creator. He is the necessary being without which there would be no existence. God stands separate from his creation, distinct from his creation, 
And because he stands separate from his creation, right? Because he is sovereign, because he is Asai, because he is the creator. He has not created himself. Because if, now, again, some religions want to say, uh, you know, not to continue poking the Mormons, but they want to say that uh, uh, God is a created being and he's just the God over this planet who became God. Well, okay, quite frankly, if he's been created, what category does that put him in? Not God. And so even if God is, you know, a so-called God over this realm, but there's another God somewhere else, that means that God is sovereign, not our God. And, we, and our God has no right to demand any sort of praise, any sort of worship, any sort of uh, 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 fidelity, nothing. Because he himself is a created being. He falls in the not God category. And so God is the supreme creator. And because he is the creator... He has the sovereign right to rule and to govern over his creation, even to the point of our own salvation. God is sovereign. And often it's difficult to wrap our minds around these things. It's difficult to, to fully grasp what these things mean. But the reality is, is that whether or not we fully understand it, and I would honestly submit to you that there's no way for us to fully understand it. Uh, not this side of heaven, anyways. Whether or not we fully understand it, we have to affirm it. We've seen it in the scriptures, right? We saw that last week with the Trinity. The Bible declares that there's one God in three persons who are co-equal and co-eternal. So we have no choice but to believe it. It's the same thing here. God, the scriptures separate God from his creation. They put him as distinct, having everything for uh, existence wrapped up within himself, not depending on anything else for existence. They establish him as the sovereign ruler over creation. We have no choice but to submit to that, to accept it. And so, like I said, I know that we've kind of uh, discussed some real heady topics. You know, we've talked about ontological distinctions. We've talked about, um, you know, aseity. We've talked about, you know, some, some philosophical concepts. But the reality is, is that we must believe the scriptures. We must believe what God's word says. And if you remember when we talked about these things a little bit last week, um, one of the things I laid out is that it's possible to accumulate knowledge about God without actually knowing God, right? So you, now you have knowledge about God, and I would honestly submit to you that it's the correct and right knowledge about God because it comes from his word. His word is the thing, is what lays these things out. His word is what testifies to these things. So you have true knowledge about God. You have right knowledge about God, but it's possible to possess true and right knowledge about God and to not be saved, to not truly know God. And so my exhortation to you, my prayer for you is that you would leave this place and ask, okay, now that I know these things, let me ask the question, have I been born again? Have I been saved? Do I know what it means to rightly be in relationship with a sovereign God? Let me pray for us. We're going to sing a few more songs and then we'll close out, close out the night. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are sovereign. God, we thank you that your sovereignty is seen in the fact that you are self-sufficient, that you are completely distinct from your creation, Lord, and the reason that you are distinct is because you have everything necessary for existence within yourself. You are the supreme creator. And that, that gives you the right to sovereignly rule and reign over your creation. God, I pray for these students. Lord, I pray that as they hear these things, Lord, that they would understand that simply having knowledge does not equate to truly knowing you. God, and I pray that as these words, uh, as they hear these words, Lord, that you would begin a work in their hearts. God, that they would recognize 
that the only way to properly know you is through your son, Jesus Christ. It's to know you through the person and work of Jesus Christ, Lord, the sinless uh, life, Lord, the sin atoning death and the sin defeating resurrection of your son, Lord, is the only thing that will bring us into a relationship with a sovereign God. We have sinned against you. We have sinned against a sovereign God and we are worthy of condemnation and of death. But it is through your son that you have made a way to reconcile us to you. And so God, I pray for these students. God, I pray that they would reckon with their salvation. Lord, I pray that they would reckon with whether or not they have been born again. And Lord, that if it is your goodwill, Lord, that you would begin the new birth in their lives. God, that you would bring about the new birth in their life, Lord, and that we would be, uh, Lord, we would be we agents to bring that about. God, that you would use our words, you would use our testimony of your word, God, to bring about this new birth. Lord, uh, we thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that you are not dependent, that our hope is not in a fickle or a feeble or a created being, Lord, but our hope, our trust, is in the sovereign ruler, the sovereign creator over everything. We thank you for these things, and we pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.